what I'm presenting is an alternative to traditional career planning, which also challenges a lot of assumptions we have. The, the mindset of an entrepreneur is helpful to embrace no matter what your current position might be. Learning how to most effectively utilize multiple currencies. You have income and assets, but then you also have time, mobility, lifestyle, and quality of life. So to the extent that you more are able to control the W's of life, who you spend time with, what you do, why you are doing them. If you have let skills and interests and hobbies and relationships atrophy over a decade or two, a focusing on career can actually be incredibly challenging. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. Today's show, we're talking to Tim Ferriss, the American entrepreneur, author, and podcaster, best known for his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, and his podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. But I'm pretty sure there's no way Tim got away with just four hours a week working at the Geo in Cincinnati. <laughs> hey, Roman, how's it going? Oh, hey, it's Dorian Positano, who hosts P&G's internal podcast, More Than Soap, which is available to all P&G employees worldwide. Great to have you on Learnings from Leaders, Dorian. So, Tell me more about this podcast. Yeah, P&G is much more than just a soap company. And the possibilities of what we can do to build our business and impact the world are endless. But we walk around with blinders on and we don't even know we're wearing them most of the time. And so on the podcast, what we do is we sit down with guests and we rip those blinders off to learn about what they would see if they were in our shoes. And then after every conversation, we also sit down with a P&G leader to unpack the insights and apply them to our world at P&G. Yeah. I mean, we've heard more than a few of your episodes and they're really, really awesome. And the guest list is just really interesting and diverse. So let's actually talk about today's episode, your conversation with Tim Ferriss. Tim has been listed as one of Fast Company's most innovative business people. He is an early stage technology investor and advisor. And The Observer and other media have called Tim the Oprah of audio due to the influence of the Tim Ferriss Show podcast, which is the first business and interview podcast to exceed 200 million downloads. Tim is the author of four number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, including the four-hour work week, which we'll be talking about today. We'll also cover topics like health and wellness, the 80 for the 20 rule, and what it would be like to play table tennis with Krishnamurti. <laughs> it's a really great one. And I'm just so excited to share this episode with our audience. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the More Than So podcast, available exclusively to all of the PNG employees who we know are listening to our PNG alumni podcast. Those of you who have not yet subscribed to More Than Soap, you got to check it out because you'll have exclusive access to not just the amazing conversations that Dorian and his team put together, but you'll also get access to post-interview conversations with P&G executive leaders where they talk about their unique take on each guest's conversation with Dorian. That's right, Raman. Any P&G employee around the world can just go to getmorethansoap.com to hear any of our exclusive content, which you can listen to right on your favorite podcasting app. And you know, it's worth mentioning that for PNG employees every other week, we also sit down with Shane Meeker, our PNG historian, to talk about some of PNG's most fascinating stories. And they really are fascinating. That is so awesome. I'm super jealous of all our friends still at PNG. And you get to hear regular episodes like this all the time. So we're looking forward to featuring lots of future conversations from the More Than Soap show on this PNG alumni podcast. And also, if you haven't yet heard, the next PNG Alumni Global Conference is almost here, November 2nd through the 5th in Washington, D.C. You'll get to hear from many former PNG CEOs, numerous C-suite alumni leaders, and emerging trendsetters. And you'll also have exclusive access to D.C. area events with your fellow alums at the PNG Alumni Global Conference this November 2nd through 5th, 2023, in Washington, D.C. 
To learn more and register, head over to pgalums.com. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the More Than Soap conversation with entrepreneur, author, and podcaster, Tim Ferriss. Yes, Crest really works. Don't tweet, don't tweet the charm. More doctors advise ivory for the skin than any other soap. Tim Ferriss, welcome to the More Than So podcast. Thanks for having me. So Tim, you're a pretty famous guy. And I will say you've got a great Wikipedia page. Oh, Lordy. (laughs) Who knows what the latest version looks like. (laughs) Well, I resisted the temptation to edit it myself when I went to check it out. But as someone who has been following you for some time, despite the fact that it's great, it doesn't quite do it justice, I think. And one thing it sort of glosses over is your wildly successful podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. So I thought we could start there. Tell us about the podcast and how it's going. So the podcast is effectively each episode aiming to interview and deconstruct world-class performers from all different disciplines to tease out habits and routines, et cetera, that people can use. That podcast uh, has done really well. It's close to 800 million downloads now. Wow. It's been number one on Apple charts uh, many times, although it's it's more competitive, of course, every week. <laughs> yeah. Now that there are something like 50,000 new podcasts launching per week. Crazy. Uh, but it's, it's still routinely in the top 100 and still routinely number one business. And I I love doing it. Hmm. Along the way, uh, starting 2008, began angel investing and have had probably more career success in that than anything I've mentioned. But I I usually understate that because A, I think it's probably quite boring to most people. (laughs) And number two, even if it were intelligible, not as, as interesting to most people. But, you know, Uber, Shopify, Twitter, Facebook, Alibaba, Duolingo, very, very, very early in some cases, like the first advisor or first investor in some of these companies, you know, 50, 50 to 100 startups at this point, wow. uh, which people can see on AngelList if they want to check that out. So Christo, your assistant, was pointing out to me that this is the 15th year anniversary of the four-hour work week. Yeah, true. And I think it's probably particularly relevant for us to maybe go a bit deeper on that book with this corporate audience. And so for those who haven't read it, maybe you could help by offering a little bit of a book summary and don't hold back because of any perceived sensitivities of this being a corporate podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of want to have a conversation with you about what has changed in your heart and your mind since writing the book. Sure. So let me take a step back first before we get into it and talk about the title, which is a blessing and a curse, and it always will be for me, I suspect. Even though I've retired the four-hour jersey, I think it's going to haunt me until my last days. (laughs) So four-hour work week, just to be clear, the book is not about how everyone can and should work four hours a week. It's about how to dramatically, how to use frameworks and different principles to multiply your per-hour output, such that if you can 10x your per hour output, and of course you need to define what these objectives and outputs are, then ostensibly you should be able to accomplish your 40 hour week in four hours. But it's really about the multiplication of hourly output more than anything else, which is why, you know, some of the very first people to latch onto this book and to be quoted in places like the New York times were very famous investors and entrepreneurs who later became venture capitalists like Mark Andreessen and others who are, if you don't recognize the name, effectively the creator of Mosaic, the first graphic web browser, also billionaire. This guy does not work four hours a week. Let's be very, very clear. <laughs> right. Uh, but he is interested in points of leverage and how one can be more effective in so much as doing the right things. And then once you've identified the right things to do, the highest leverage things to do with kind of asymmetric upside, then looking secondarily at how to be efficient how to set processes in place to do those things as, say, quickly as possible, time efficiently as possible. Uh, so that's what the book is about. The initial title for the book, which you, you may or may not know, was Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit, which was really the title of my seminar or my guest lecture at Princeton because, you know, the this, this sports nutrition and everything, right? Ha, right. ha, ha, drug dealing for fun and profit. <laughs> 
the publisher did not love that name. So the way that I arrived on the four hour work week, which is how I try to arrive at a lot of things is not by having an emotional debate with a publisher that will never work, especially as a first time unproven author, but rather by creating a, at the time a Google AdWords campaign to test every say title and subtitle that were my finalists mm. that I could live with. So wow. there were like a dozen titles, a dozen subtitles, and based on search traffic or search terms I thought relevant to the content of the book, say world travel, retirement, different terms related to efficiency, different names associated with efficiency, or say that genre of self-help books, browsers would be presented with advertisements on Google AdWords that would have the title of the book and then a automatically mixed and matched subtitle, which would be the description of the advertisement. And, and Google will do this automatically for you, the sort of multivariate testing. Right. And I had URLs for each one, but the URLs took people simply to under construction pages because I didn't care about the content on the page. I didn't care about conversion at that point. I cared about click-through rates as a way of simulating what people would pick up off a shelf. This is when right. shelves mattered more. I also went to Borders in Palo Alto on University Ave, which is no longer there. And I printed out a high resolution cover for the four hour work week, different covers, and wrapped them around books that were going to be the same format, meaning the same size. That's amazing. And put it on the new arrivals shelves. And I clocked which covers and which titles you know, there's some confounding variables there, got picked up the most, right? So I could go then back to my publisher and say, based on the data, this is what we should do. And that's why we did it. You were very much ahead of the curve on some of that stuff, on performance marketing and yeah. using the data to make your case. I mean, I think a lot of people at P&G can learn from that in terms of what we want to sell to our management in some cases who are making the decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether it's an idea, whether it's working remotely. I mean, the four hour work week has become very relevant recently with work from home and everything instigated or accelerated by COVID. Right. There was a piece in the New Yorker recently called revisiting the four hour work week related to this remote component. But yeah, whether or not you view yourself as a salesperson, you are a salesperson, right. whether it's internally with ideas, whether it's internally asking for some type of mobile flexibility, let's just say, or anything else. And the data can be very powerful allies. Uh, I mean, they will sometimes <laughs> prove out a conclusion that you don't like, but certainly developing a testing and experimental mindset, I think is key. And that runs throughout the entire four hour work week. So right. the four hour work week in brief, I'll just lay it out because you asked me to give a quick summary. It's split into four sections, definition, elimination, automation, and then liberation. Definition is really defining the objectives and the things you want to achieve. This is done largely by going through a process that I call lifestyle design, and that is trying to determine what you, you want your lifestyle to look like and be comprised of activities, possessions, could be any number of things, and then determining how much that costs say, getting to a number that would be target monthly income, and then working backwards from that to design a career or a business, uh, say, as an entrepreneur, to produce that lifestyle output versus kind of doing your job, having that slowly change over time into something that may be unrecognizable or just remain the same and then have your lifestyle be whatever manages to kind of sneak through the cracks, right. which I think is the default. So what I'm presenting is an alternative to traditional career planning, which also challenges a lot of assumptions we have about retirement, which I think are fundamentally flawed if you start to poke at them a bit. So definition is sort of identifying and measuring a number of things that most people have not clearly identified or measured. Then elimination is removing everything is everything possible creating a not-to-do list, and eliminating as much as possible that does not service what we identified in definition. Only at that point do you then look at automation, which is creating systems to automate as much of the definition section as possible. And there are many many basic tools included in that, such as batching, right? We, we don't do a, a load of laundry every time we have a dirty pair of socks. We wait until there's a critical mass and then we do a load of laundry because there's a certain setup cost, task switching cost, et cetera. And this can apply to email, right? If you're checking email 100 times a day, you're doing the equivalent of 
a load of laundry every time you have a new pair of dirty socks. And there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency involved. Not only that, but uh, in a very high percentage of cases, we never go back to finish the task that was interrupted by this impulsive sock washing. Let's just call it metaphorically speaking. Okay. So automation then gets into not just mental frameworks, but technological tools that one can use to assist with this automation. A lot of it also is within the context of entrepreneurship. But I would argue, just as I said, you're a salesperson, whether you want to think of yourself as that or not, you're also an entrepreneur in one capacity or another, whether or not you are hiring people or people have hired or are hiring you. I think that the, the mindset of one who undertakes, right, entrepreneur, literally, is helpful to embrace no matter what your current position might be. And then liberation is making use of the things that you've defined in section one and learning how to most effectively utilize multiple currencies. And uh, that means we're not restricting ourselves. And I'm not talking about crypto or Dogecoin, although (laughs) uh, there, there is income, right? And there are these sort of tradable assets fungible, non-fungible tokens. If you want to talk about money, we don't, uh, let's not get into that, but you have income for, for simplicity's sake and assets, but then you also have time. You also have mobility and sort of the lifestyle and quality of life output and value of each dollar is actually not consistent right. across different circumstances. So to the extent that you more are able to control let's just call it the, uh, the W's of life, right? Like who you spend time with, what you do, why you are doing them. Right. It's a bit of a cheat, just like the journalistic prompts, right? You have <laughs> how, where, et cetera, right? So there's, right. there's a, an H in there. But <laughs> to the, the greater extent that you control those things, the more each dollar of income has a practical value. It's not just easy to find examples of, say, someone making 50 grand a year who has a better lifestyle, and of course, this is subjectively assessed than somebody who makes 100 or 200 grand a year. Right. It's actually very common. Yeah. Because the more we value a single currency like income, the more we tend to devalue other currencies, one of which would be like social connections, right? So if you look at I'm getting a little far afield here, but bear with me. If you look at some of the and I'm skeptical of the measurements for this, but there's this uh, National Geographic issue that I read about a year ago, and it had done an assessment of happiness, right? And based on polling and so on around the world. Yeah. And there were three standouts. One, Costa Rica, mostly attributed to the social cohesiveness and the communities that are built and valued in Costa Rica. There's, There's more to it. Denmark, I have Danish blood and I know a lot of Danes, they would attribute that to low expectations. So funny. funny. That helps. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's also a vast social net, right. which helps on some level. Although, let's be careful of measuring one thing, because also very high rates of suicide in Scandinavia. Yeah. And then Singapore, where things are very predictable, where your ability to climb the ladder and achieve certain things is very predictable. Like A, input, and then B, output. Interesting. Yeah. So the opposite end of the spectrum, almost in terms of expectations, right? Yeah. And then also in the liberation section, it talks about something that people generally don't pay enough attention to. But if you create all this time, the filling of the void, sort of the creation of a life that takes advantage of that time, if you have let skills and interests and hobbies and relationships atrophy over a decade or two, or less or more mm. of focusing on career can actually be incredibly challenging. Yeah. And it can be very tricky. So that's that's also a component of the end of it. Interesting. That is my book summary of the four hour work week. Well Tim, that was an A plus book summary. So I guess you've done it a few times over yeah. the past fifteen years. And again, there's a lot that we could latch onto there. But I'll pick a couple themes, namely the definition and liberation stages that you talked about. And I want to connect those topics to what you've also mentioned before, which is mini retirements and having mini retirements throughout one's career. So tell me about what that means and why you think they're important. The idea is that you 
you can kind of slave, save, and then retire and have this retirement after age 60, 65 that kind of redeems all of this time that you've met, that you've spent doing other things up to that point. That's one approach where you have this bolus of, say, retirement at the end. Yeah. I very rarely see that work. Yeah. There are instances where it can work, and there are like very specific profiles of people, let's say, who worked in government jobs or who have worked, actually, people who have worked in large organizations for a very long period of time sometimes succeed with this. The more entrepreneurial they are, the more they have trouble with that type of retirement. Another approach would be to redistribute that retirement throughout life in a more intermittent way with what I would call mini retirements, which are generally going to be a good deal longer than two weeks. So right. you, could think of, you could think of them as, as mini sabbaticals. But putting aside all the benefits of that also to businesses, what that allows you to do is stress test some of the assumptions you have about what makes you happy. You know, if in your head, kind of Shawshank Redemption style, you're like, well, if I can just save enough money, you know, get out of here and I'll <laughs> sail around a boat in the Mediterranean for the rest of my life. And it's like, well, yeah. if that is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, upon which your like 20, 30 year career commitment is predicated, maybe you should take a two week minimum vacation and actually Test get on out. a boat, actually yeah. get on a boat and see right. what that's like. Because you might decide <laughs> after 24 hours that it sucks and they yeah. have no interest in that, in which case time to revise. Right. Tim, you're trying to ruin my dreams here, I think, or something. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> trying to get you to test your dreams. Give me a dose of reality, maybe. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of friendly recommendation to test assumptions. Yeah. Because the traditional approach, which you know, is, I might also refer to as like the deferred life plan, is actually a lot riskier than what I'm proposing. Right. It is much, much, much riskier than what I'm suggesting. Because everything in the book and everything in all the books, everything in the podcast is generally six-month projects, two-week experiments. Like That's my lens on everything that I do. And uh, by taking that approach, I mean, I certainly make mistakes, but you're able to risk mitigate a lot, right? You're really able to risk mitigate a lot so that you don't get to the end of the race, finish and realize, oh shit, I was, pardon my French, like I was headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. Right? right. I, was, I was in the wrong race to begin with. I was in the right. wrong game to begin with. And that's avoidable. Tim, there are two business cases I want to talk through with you, just acknowledging that we are all salespeople at the end of the day, even within P&G, if your title doesn't include sales. And the two are the business case for these mini retirements and the business case from your vantage point of working remotely. So put yourself in the shoes of a P&G and I'd love for you to make the case on both of those as an employee at PNG. So let me start with mobile. And I should say, I don't think everyone is built for remote independent work. Yeah. I just want to say that up front because there's been a honeymoon period of, of work at home where people yeah. are like, I'm never going back to the office. <laughs> for a lot of people, that's going to get old really quickly. Right. And psychologically, it can be very, end up feeling very isolating. Right. Uh, especially when some some segment of your coworkers go back to the office and are engaging in that social experience. Right. It's one thing when everyone is forced Everyone's to be at home. It. Right. It's very different when a certain number are not. And I say that as someone who is who is who, who has worked remotely for 20 plus years now. Right. And a couple of things off the bat. I would say that there are companies who were not just resilient but in a way anti-fragile and benefited from COVID because they were built from the ground up to be work at home or distributed friendly, if not distributed first. I'll give two examples. One, and there are other kind of secular tailwinds that help these companies also. So I'm not saying it's single cause and effect, but two companies I know really well. So Shopify is one. So just as a company organizationally, they were very able to adapt quickly to what happened with COVID. Automatic is Auto, M-A-T-T, Automatic with two Ts, founded by Matt Mullenweg. They run WordPress.com, WooCommerce, many others. I'm an, right. also an advisor to that company. They have been distributed first since day one. Uh, so they have people all over the globe. And I would say that that was a decision that was made in part because they are able to source and retain talent in ways that are very hard for right. a company that is solely operating kind of a fixed structure capacity. 
there's a lot of expense associated with that. So if you can uh, not necessarily get rid of offices, but maybe trim around the edges, you can take those cost savings and apply them to other things like retention bonuses, like incentive structures. There, there are very practical positive effects. All right. As an employee, also, I think, and we're seeing this certainly with the great resignation, right? yeah. if you want to retain good people and they've grown accustomed to being close to their family in location X, and you're saying you have to come back to the office, they're going to quit. So right. if you want to retain, uh, I, I think it's important to keep a lot of these variables in mind. Whether or not people will thrive remotely is a totally separate, we could do a two hour conversation just on that. Right. Some people automatically do really well. Some do very, very poorly. Yeah. For some, it takes a while, and then they start to get really fatigued after six months, but that's kind of beyond the purview of this. Let's go to the other, which uh, was... The mini, mini retirements. Mini retirements. So mini retirements are pretty easy to make the case for as an entrepreneur. Let's say you're running a team of 10 people. If you have a, let's just call it a small business, although, I mean, I only have a few employees, uh, so you, you can create very... yeah high yield, pretty elegant business structures with very few people. But let's just for simplicity say you have five to 10 people, that is your business, yeah. and we'll call it a small business. Or team in the case of Yeah, team. team, right. So if you, as the leader, cannot take two days off, you are a single point of failure, hmm. right? There are clearly bottlenecks that have not been addressed. Right. And if you take a week off, but you still have your phone, and maybe occasionally you sneak a glance at the laptop. Right. Even two weeks, what you can allow is the buildup of fires that you then deal with when you get back. Right. Right. So you can still be a firefighter, which doesn't, in fact, improve systems. It does not improve process. It does not improve the tooling in any durable way. Conversely, right, I recently took not a super long trip, but about two weeks overseas. And... What that did is it gave us a very time-bound, time-sensitive opportunity to look at all of the, uh, the systems and policies and approvals I needed to put in place to allow my employees to make autonomous decisions. Right. And uh, there are a bunch of issues that cropped up. It's like, okay, there are these types of approvals that I, that I currently manually handle. All right, well, am I going to increase, say, the threshold to which my employees can make those decisions, or if that's too much of a security risk or something like that, am I going to have some type of batching that allows them to be delayed or yeah. maybe done in 10 minutes once a week as opposed to scattered throughout the week in 17 different emails and messages? Right. And here's the, the takeaway. To the bottom line, let's forget about the psychological and just life quality benefits that come from from being able to do that right from a pure just profit and sense perspective when you are forced to improve those systems because you're going to be offline for say two weeks when you come back those systems persist right if you allow them right and all of a sudden you have kind of reduced your bus count bus count this is other <laughs> concept which is you know how many people on your team need to get hit by a bus for the whole thing to fall apart <laughs> Right? Okay, got it. I mean, this is another way of saying like single point of failure. Right. Do you have redundancy in the system? Yeah. Do you have coverage such that if there is a given problem, if someone gets sick, if someone goes on maternity leave, if someone quits, if someone is poached, whatever it ends up being, how resilient is your system? And for me, mini retirements has been one of the key, if not the key, component to forcing you to implement a lot of things that you will otherwise put off. Right. I want to circle back, Tim, to the second part of one of my earlier questions, which is you wrote the book 15 years ago. What would you say most significantly has changed in your heart and mind since writing that book? Well, this is top of mind for me because I was recently asked by my German editor to write a new preface for... Oh a new edition of the four hour work week in Germany. Hmm. Germany is my, let's see here, both for the book and for the podcast. I think it's my fifth largest country outside of us, you know, Australia, UK, Canada. Wow. So the four hour work week is sold uh, close to a half a million copies in Germany, you know, in German, wow. uh, which is, is incredible. 
And uh, at first, I, I, I'm going to get to your point uh, and your question specifically, but I turned down writing the new preface a couple of times. Hmm. And then ultimately, I was like, all right, fine. Um, I tried to get the editor to allow me to have a close friend of mine write it who's known me for like 20 years because I thought that would be the most four-hour work week thing to do. Great delegation. And I was like, this is a perfect illustration of everything in the book. And uh, (laughs) that was rejected. So you don't always get your way. But I decided to write it. And what struck me is that, you know, last time I wrote a preface was in 2009. So this is after the, the, you know, the great financial crisis, so to speak. And when I look at this a handful of paragraphs that were in that preface and the editor asked if I wanted to update them. It was like, retirement accounts have fallen by X percentage and there's uncertainty in the markets and blah, 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 blah. And I decided to keep it in because so little has changed Mm. in the sense that there are cycles and patterns. And in fact, the principles in the book are durable and they apply to all of these circumstances. Yeah. The tools change, right? So the actual technological tools and platforms that are recommended in something written in 2009, of course, are going to be <laughs> largely irrelevant or obsolete by the time we get to 2022. Shockingly, there are still some, I mean, many in the book that I would say are relevant. but That yes. are relevant. Yeah, there are some that are relevant. And thanks to my readers for when I did the revision <laughs> in 2000, so 2007, initial version comes out, and then I did the revision of that very large revision added 120 pages or something. And that came out in 2009. And it was through polling my audience at the time that I found Shopify in 2008. Wow. So I owe my, my readers a huge thank you for that. That's awesome. So they're certainly still around as people may have noticed, but as far as heart and uh, kind of heart and mind, and I may be missing something that you said, the importance of the filling the void for me right now, I think is even though I tried to, to really underscore it in the book, I could write an entire book on that in the sense that, you know, there's a Rumi quote, the Persian poet and mystic, that is in part, you know, I should be suspicious of what I want. It's something along those lines. Yeah. And it comes back to also in parallel what I was saying about using mini retirements to test this larger retirement deferred life plan that you might have. And, you know, what I've seen, and this is going to sound pretty strange, and hopefully it's not depressing for folks, but when you create a lot of time and flexibility in your life, from what I've seen, because I know some people who have really done this well, and it doesn't take a lot of money, right? It, it, It entirely depends on your lifestyle design plan and your target monthly income and not bloating those numbers. It's a lot more straightforward than people might expect. If you end up with a ton of time and you're not sure what to do with that time, yeah. Even if you are considered by all of your friends to be sort of quote unquote successful, I think you can end up with a lot of the same neuroses as like a chronically unemployed person. <laughs> yeah. I actually think like the presentation of symptoms is super similar. Right. So I, you know, I might spend a little bit more time on that, but honestly, like nobody wants to hear me bitch and moan about having kind of neuroses from <laughs> too much time. There's not much sympathy in that game. So uh, I would just say that. I think it's Stumbling Upon or Stumbling on Happiness. Daniel Gilbert is also a fascinating read, which is is really focused on this one thing. We should be very suspicious of what we want or what we yeah. think we want and what we think will make us happy, which isn't to say that you'll never be happy. It's just that that happiness and that joy comes from surprising places. Right. And it, it may not come at all from what you predict, which comes back then again to... Test, 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 right. test, experiment, experiment, experiment. Right. I haven't read Susan Cain's book yet, but I listened to your podcast episode with her and I loved it. Thank you. One theme that I took away is that this sort of deep longing for more, you know, that most of us feel and the longing that Susan pointed out, C.S. Lewis calls the longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off can be mistaken for the longing for these worldly pursuits. And so it's a roundabout way of getting to my question for you, I guess, which is how do you reconcile that insight and the roomy quote of staying in your place of patience while being an ambitious person in society? (laughs) That's a a hell of a question, man. 
Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very <laughs> fair question. Let me take a step back before I even attempt to step into that. There's a blog post that I wrote a long time ago. Let me just, I'm Google searching Tim Ferriss neurotic because <laughs> the, the headline of this blog post, you that? Uh, the first result is a blog post I wrote in 2013 called Productivity Tricks productivity in quotation marks. So productivity tricks for the neurotic, manic, depressive, and crazy, and then in parentheses, like me. <laughs> Just to like paint a picture of what my days actually look like. Yeah. So, uh, because I, I don't want anyone to harbor the illusion that, you know, I wake up every morning at 4 a.m. and, you know, karate chop the universe or high, <laughs> high five the universe and just like, you know, Mary Poppins my way through the whole day, you know, like <laughs> sipping macchiatos and making billions of dollars and saving orphans and snuggling with kittens. Like that's not what my day looks like. Uh, uh, I mean, I have my good days, okay. but every once in a while. Yeah, I have my good days and having fun today. So far, yeah. you know, this is this, I'm having a good time in this conversation. We need one of those Mai Tais. Yeah, <laughs> I can yeah, hear the birds outside. Everything's great. Uh, I would say that I don't know how to answer that. And in part because this is something that I'm sitting with. And it came mm -hmm. up in this conversation with Susan Cain, who, for those who don't know, wrote a book called Quiet about introversion that was mega, mega bestseller mm -hmm. based on a TED Talk of, of related topics. And has since written this book called Bittersweet about, in part, what you're mentioning. And this was a very recent conversation for me that I had with her. This was only recorded, who knows, maybe a month ago. Okay. And my podcasts are intensely personal. So it's likely that that came up in part because it's her book, but I had her on in part because the topic of the book yeah. is of topical and temporal interest to me, right? So there's something that attracted me to that because it, it reflects questions that I have yeah. and questions that I, I yet have, as of yet, don't have answers for. But I would say... In general, I am very prone, maybe like some people listening, to intellectualize things and analyze things. And I think this is very often a seductive default that leads nowhere. So let me give an example, right? So if, if you wake up and like you get to like, I don't know, 10 a.m. or 1 p.m. and you're just like, I need to figure out my life. What the hell am I doing? Da, 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 da. And yeah. you're like, all these things are wrong. And everywhere you look are problems and people disappointing you. And yeah. there's a chance all of that is true, right? That someone else would agree with it. But there's also a chance that like you just need a handful of macadamia nuts in a cold shower. Or mm. you need to like go for a walk because you haven't moved in three days. Right. Or you need to get away from your screen because, you know, the like high-powered electronics at 18-inch fixed <laughs> distance is like doing horrible things to your brain. And that is to say like tr what I try to do before even sitting with those questions is like audit your exercise, right? Am I exercising? So that's kind of the domino that tips over a lot of other dominoes. If you're exercising right. properly, chances are you're going to improve your eating habits, et cetera, right. and you're going to sleep better and so on. So it's, it's kind of a, a leverage point that I like to focus on. And you know, once you get through that, I think oftentimes you're like that problem. I thought that was the problem I can let go of. It's actually, yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced it's a problem. Right. Another thing I might recommend, and it's not a cure-all by any stretch, but if people haven't seen the work by Byron Katie, uh, she's a strange character, controversial in some respects, but her worksheets are available for free. There's one, I think it's called One Emotion, or no, One Thought at a Time, where you basically take your thought, whatever this thought is, and you scrutinize it, right? So this this belief, which is a thought you take is true, you begin to stress test it, you begin to invert it, you begin to poke at it. And very often by the end of it, let's just say the thing that's driving you nuts is, you know, my kid is selfish or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, you come up with all these counter examples and you're like, actually, I'm not convinced that's true. Right. And the problem goes away because now, now instead of trying to answer the question of what do I do with my selfish kid? which is already going to be a quagmire if it's not based on some degree of fact, can just be discarded. Right. Uh, this is a very long, maybe tap dancey way of circling around what you asked, but the short answer is I'm not sure how to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great example, though, because I, I think the mind does create 
illusory problems to address maybe that feeling of longing or the reaching that Rumi and C.S. Lewis are referencing. And by kind of blindly following what your mind suggests might be that superficial problem, you're not really getting at it. Uh, may I add one thing? So this is a, an answer to a question that I ask very often. So one of the questions I ask a lot of guests is, you know, metaphorically speaking, if you could put a message or a quote or an image or anything up on a huge billboard where billions of people would see it, what might you put on that? Yeah. And I asked a hospice care physician, so palliative care physician named BJ Miller, who's helped more than a thousand people to die, mm. probably at this point, thousands, wow. who also happens to be a triple amputee from having been electrocuted as a college student, which eerily enough happened, I think it was a year before I got to Princeton, same place. I know exactly where it happened to him. Wow. And his answer was, don't believe everything that you think. Right. That's what he would put on a billboard. And that has stuck with me. Like, don't believe everything that you think. Be very skeptical. And the work is one of the more direct ways of examining your beliefs, these thoughts you take to be true. Because if you just try to sit there and drink a cup of coffee and ruminate on your thoughts, sort of like using more fishing line to try to untangle the knot in the fishing line, it's like, well, I mean, you can try that. Right. But I think it's going to be very slippery. Right. Better to lock it on paper. Morning pages from Julia Cameron, also very, very helpful. Reminds me of Beautiful Mind. Yeah. And how they portrayed John Nash, who by the end of the film, well, I better not ruin the movie for people. But <laughs> Yeah, suffice to say, taking all of your beliefs and thoughts as true can make you cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So. <laughs> some written introspection and developing a habit of that is very helpful for kind of reducing your crazy quotient by say 10% reliably, which is very I'll meaningful. Take it. Yeah, I'll take the 10%. Going from zero to 10% is a big deal. <laughs> I have in my notes a short passage from this little book I read recently. It's called Your Brain on Story. And it relates a little bit to what you were just talking about. It says, freedom is available to you at any time. It's a state of mind. It's how you choose to dance with the world given your present circumstances. Instead, people defer being free and living passionately now, imagining that they'll receive those feelings later after their investments pay off. I would say, and this is me talking now, I would say that chasing after, I'll call it fame and fortune, appears to be the dis-ease of our times. And so I wanted to ask, you know, do you see it that way? And what advice would you give Tim for people who are kind of obsessed with that imagined feeling? Yeah, let's see. Well, I'll start with the famous part. Yeah. I'll keep this short just because I know we have only a little bit of time left. So I would encourage, even if it's just to develop empathy for <laughs> yeah. people you think out there who you might envy, yeah. there's a post called 11 reasons not to become famous <laughs> that I wrote which gets into some pretty gnarly stuff. Yeah. And I am, let's face it, like a D-level celebrity, if that, right? I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm not George Clooney or any of these people. <laughs> and it's funny that that's your new basis of comparison, but continue. Well, yeah. it's not my basis. Yeah. It's just saying like there are people who really, uh, I mean, they might as well be like Osama bin Laden when he was hiding. Like they can't go anywhere. Right. And I am many levels down from that. But there are many, many trade-offs, including safety and privacy, that come along with any degree of fame. And that could be 10,000 followers. I'm not necessarily talking about a million. So I'd recommend people check out that blog post, just 11 reasons not to become famous, and you'll find it right away. And then the second was, what was it, well, successful? Well, I called it fame and fortune. You know, fame and fortune. for alliteration, but insert your identity-building characteristic there, I guess. We all need something to look forward to, yeah. right? So mm. if that's the carrot that you have, that's fine. Yeah. Go for it. You know, just make sure you're regularly revisiting and questioning assumptions and testing your beliefs about it. And it comes down to the particulars, right? Like if you're doing something you love and you would, not only would you do it for free if you had enough money, but like you would pay someone to do it, right? Which is true of the podcast, right? Like if the only way I could have these conversations is that I would have to pay to have them. Yeah. I would pay to have these conversations, right? So yeah, me too. <laughs> so if I get, if fortune or 
if money is a byproduct of that, let's just say, yeah, fantastic, right? Like what sacrifices am I making? What is the downside? However, if you, let's just say, making this up, but you know, join an investment banking firm and you're starting at the bottom and you're kind of two years into your tour of duty and could be a law firm, could be anything, but McKinsey, whatever. And not to throw any of these companies under the bus, but I know a lot of people who actually loved being at McKinsey, but let's just say you're at a generic investment bank right. and you're a year or two in and you hate what you are doing yeah. with a passion. Like there's nothing about it that is redeeming, maybe apart from like the schadenfreude that you see occasionally and like the commiseration that you have with coworkers yeah. who are in the same <laughs> crappy situation <laughs> from a lifestyle perspective. Right. Well, then as the sales pitch goes for a lot of these places, it's like, well, you'll get a diverse exposure to A, B, and C, and then you can write your own ticket and you can branch off and do a, B, and C. In practice, I very rarely see that. Sometimes it happens, and there are success cases. I actually know a few of them, but very often people get kind of trapped in a lane of lifestyle bloat where they start buying expensive cars and the renting or buying expensive places. And before you know it, they have two kids and they, and they think, you know what? I can't leave this. It's too risky. And then they're in. I don't recommend that situation to folks if they can avoid it. So right. there's pursuit of fortune and then there's sort of the invitation of fortune. And, you know, I haven't always been in the latter camp. It's taken me a long time to get to podcasting. I mean, uh, the, the podcasting that I've done since 2014, right? It's the six years. I mean, that's the longest I've ever done anything. Yeah. And I'm you know, mid forties. So it took me a while to figure it out. So also like, I'd say, you know, cut yourself some slack. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So <laughs> That would be my current take, at least, on that question. And I love your earlier point of test, 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 and don't make assumptions when you don't have to. The other thing you said a second ago that actually allowed me to physically feel some relief is when you said everyone needs you know, some things to look forward to. But I think I've been a little bit trapped in this delusion that there's, as Krishnamurti might say, going to be pure passion without any motive. Uh, maybe I'll get there someday, but in the interim, I think if it's okay to desire a particular outcome or want to look forward to something, but recognize that that outcome isn't going to be it and just have fun playing the game and give it your all, maybe that's the good balance to be in. Yeah, I also would have loved to have like played ping pong with Krishnamurti. <laughs> I bet he would have been a ruthless competitive bastard. Yeah, exactly. I bet he would have wanted to cream people. <laughs> so I want to see him when he's like up two points and then suddenly he's down two points. I want to see if he like throws the racket, throws yeah, the paddle against the wall. Yeah. You know, not to slight Krishnamurti. Look, very smart guy. I get it. But I have seen, I'm not going to name names, but like a fair number of supposedly enlightened beings <laughs> lose their minds and freak out on people. No way. Oh, yeah. And look, these are not mutually exclusive things. Right. Right. It's, right. it's kind of like the, the cliched expression, like before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry right. water. It's like, okay, well, maybe like losing your mind at people when I'm really editing hard here. I curse usually so much coming from Long <laughs> Island, but um, self-censoring really hard here. I think that it's easy to build impossibly high standards for ourselves based right. on our incredibly partial perception of a version of themselves that someone is putting in the world. Exactly. Uh, you know, before we started recording, you mentioned Ram Das, formerly Richard Albert, and I'm not on board with all of his stuff, but yeah. fascinating guy, certainly. And especially, I think, in the later phases when he had aphasia after his stroke and, yeah. I mean, still maintained an incredibly sort of equanimous, upbeat relationship with himself and the world. I mean, I, that, that was, I was like, okay, when the rubber hits the road, this guy actually has some stuff figured out. Right. Unless he came out of the box like that, which we also don't know. But he has a quote that I think of a lot, which is, you know, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> and, you know, I would love to, when, when we hear about these people... And look, I'm sure they're great people like Eckhart Tolle or, or Krishnamurti. Like, okay, I want them to sit at, the, I want to see them like at the dinner table 
with that aunt they can't stand, <laughs> with that kid who always yeah. bugs the hell out of them because another relative doesn't discipline them properly. Like, I want to see their face. I want to have a video camera on the micro expressions on their face yeah. over that dinner. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I want to see. And, and here's the thing. I think you can have both. Right. Like you humans, both. like we're very fancy yeah. monkeys on a spinning rock and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have this thing called language that we've developed to a super high degree, but we're still, you know, basically still monkeys right. at the end of the day. No, I think Eckhart totally admitted overtly once that he just had to get out of the house because he couldn't stand being around his mother at some point. Yeah. You know, we're human beings. I think Alan Watts kind of struck the right balance too and admitted so. You know, he presented, it seemed to me, all sides of his human self and uh i mean he drank every night not that i'm condoning that but uh we're human beings so totally agree yeah if someone's got too clean and too perfect a presentation my spider sense goes off in a big 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 way just to get us back on track a little bit here before we conclude what are some of your non-negotiable routines or practices in life that have stood the test of time could be anything at all. And probably I would say is maybe a culmination of what you've learned on all your episodes of the podcast and everything else you've done in life. I mean, what are the big ones? I mean, you mentioned exercise earlier. Clearly that's an important one and diet, but what else would come to mind? I'm going to harp on that for a second because it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Diet exercise. Like tell me about the new app or whatever it is. I'm not saying that's what you're asking, but it's like people kind of brush over that. And I just, I just want to emphasize that if you view the body as this uh, sort of vehicle that you just shove full of calories that shuttles around this passenger known as the brain, the two are inseparable, right? right? I mean, the gut produces, just as an example, tremendous volume of neurotransmitters. So the interplay of kind of mind and body is not just an interplay. They are one and the same. And if you want to improve your mood, right? there's an entire book called Spark about how different types of exercise increase things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And the, the examples I can give are many-fold, but if you can't seem to solve something in your mind, I have found the best way to get out of your head is to get into your body. And again, they're kind of one and the same, mm-hmm. but the circuitry is overlapping tremendously. So I just want to say, even if you don't care at all about how you look, exercise to me is the shortcut. Now, by exercise, I mean two things, especially as you get older. Number one is preserving muscle mass to the greatest extent possible. So resistance training, non-negotiable. And by resistance training, I mean literally weight training. I mean, I'm going to weight train today, and it's going to take me... 30 to 45 minutes. Mm. That will be the only weight training that I do this week. Really? It is not a large commitment in terms of training volume. And uh, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen What About Bob, but when uh, everybody should watch What About Bob, (laughs) when in the beginning, Richard Dreyfuss is this fancy psychiatrist. He's talking to Bob and he says, well, Bob, there's this groundbreaking new book that I've heard of. And he's like, let me see if I have it here. And he scans his bookshelf and it's all his own book. And he goes, ah, yes, here it is. And he pulls out his own book. But the 4-Hour Body does lay this out in very, very simple terms. And uh, you can find a bunch online yeah. about that for free. If that's if that's your vibe, that's fine too. And then the other piece of exercise would be movement practice that hits all of the basic like fundamental planes of movement. Like Even if you lift weights, like when's the last time that you rotated? Chances are for most people, the answer is going to be, I can't even remember. Right. So when you say rotated, you don't mean, I assume the type of workout that you've done that week, you know, meaning you rotate from chest to back to shoulders. to No, legs. exactly. Yeah. I mean, rotate literally if you're standing with your feet in place and you try to twist your torso around so that your nipples are facing a different wall. That is what I mean by twist. I see. To incorporate some of these movements that are less likely to be automatically checked off with weight training, there are movement practices. I try to build in some communal aspect because I do think the societal piece, or not the societal, communal piece is really big. Yeah. Rock climbing, where you're working with belay partners. Acro yoga is a major favorite of mine. Anything that is, in, that is involving other people in a collaborative way, I see as a huge quality of life multiplier. Okay, so aside from that, what are some non-negotiables? Uh, I'm looking right outside my house right now. There's a barrel sauna outside. 
hot and cold contrast. Hmm. I do think a lot of things that were old are once again new. For instance, you know, I wrote, wrote about cold exposure in the 4-Hour Body, got laughed at quite a lot, even though it's a very scientific chapter and features a former NASA scientist who's done a whole lot of experiments. Hmm. Cold baths used to be prescribed for melancholy, wow. aka depression, right? And I have found, very, I'm not giving medical advice, this is just in my personal experience, I've found hot and cold contrast, especially, say, right after the technical workday, right? So 6 p.m., let's just say, pre-dinner and certainly multiple hours before bed to have a profound impact on mood. It has an incredible impact on recovery. There are other people who talk about heat shock proteins and things like that, hmm. like Dr. Rhonda Patrick. How long do you spend in there? Oh, I'll do rotations of, say, you know, 20 minutes hot if it's a sauna and then like three-minute cold plunge, which usually means basically ice bath. And I'll do two or three cycles of that. And what you can observe also, and this comes back to like tracking, right? What gets measured gets managed and the whole experimental mindset is if you're wearing an aura ring or a whoop band or something like this, a lot of people will see a substantial uptick in something called heart rate variability, HRV, not the same day, but like a, on a basically a, like a 20, almost 24 hour delay after sauna alone in some instances or hot and cold contrast therapy. So that would be another. Lots of walking, and I don't put this in the same category as exercise. There's a book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry, which outlines the, well, as you'd expect, daily rituals <laughs> and routines of about 100 different creatives. And there were, there were two things that popped out, actually three. So one is lots of use of dexedrine, which is basically a methamphetamine or an amphetamine. I don't recommend that, but it came up a lot. Uh, the good old days. Yeah. Uh, so don't do that. Yeah. And then uh, some degree of drinking. So along the lines of the like right drunk, edit sober, Hemingway type approach, right. but like be careful of modeling people like Hemingway. That story didn't end uh, with a sort of Disney yeah. sunset. And the other was walking, really consistent walking. Mm. And I think it was Kierkegaard who said, you know, I, I've not yet found a problem. I can't walk my way out of mm. something like that. The one line of Kierkegaard I will ever understand. Yeah. I've already walked an hour today yeah. and I did calls. Like I'll very frequently batch my phone calls with walking. Yeah. Other non-negotiables. Well, I would say morning pages. If people just search my name in morning pages, I, I, I wrote a long post. It's not actually that long. Uh, like a moderately length post about morning pages, which are taken from The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. This was recommended to me by Brian Cobbleman, who's a prolific writer and producer. So Rounders, Billions, many, many, many movies with his, his partner, David Levine. I think morning pages are very helpful for that. At least once a year, I'll grab something. Hold on one sec. Hmm. So this, I just picked up a book. This is an older book, The 80-20 Principle. I'm holding the newest edition, which actually has a, a quote from me on the cover, which I never do, but I, I got to know Richard, the author, and I've had him on the podcast for people who, who may be interested in audio, but the 80-20 principle is uh, just an outstanding tool and assessment to immerse yourself in for at least uh, a handful of days every year, just to kind of update and refresh the presence of that as a lens through which you look at the world. At P&G, we reference quite frequently this 80 for the 20, which could be in a different context, but at least in ours, it's meant to represent doing 20% of the work to enable 80% of the output so that you can... That's the same. Okay. That's right. It can be applied in many places, personal and professional. Right. Because you, know, you mentioned overwhelm, but you framed it, I think, as overwhelm with respect to career and professional decisions. Yeah. My experience is, take it with a huge grain of salt, is that very often when we feel overwhelmed with our professional, it is interlaced with things that may not be resolved, right? Unsaids, unheards, whatever it might be in the personal. So it's useful as an exercise to take the 80-20 principle and apply it in both the personal and the professional, because just like the mind and the body at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing. Right. I know people will disagree with that, but it's all, it is all integrated. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. We talked about that concept a little bit. I did with McConaughey when he came on the podcast 
uh, because I was explaining to him or at least attempting to explain how the concept relates to what we do at P&G. And his worldview is quite clearly don't half-ass it. And he was like, well, what about the 100 for the one? Implying that everything that he chooses to do is sort of all in. But I think just like everything else in life, you know, there's a, a nuance to this, right? Yeah, another non-negotiable is saying no to almost everything. Uh, coming back to that, you're the average of the five people you associate with most. I really believe that very few things are neutral and things are either making you healthier or they're making you, they're damaging your health, right? And things are either improving you, including people, or making you worse in some capacity. So I, I take that very, very seriously. We're not on this planet for that long, right? despite all the techno optimists attempts to live to 150 and 200. <laughs> I think most of them are, most of them are going to fail and we should assume that. So yeah. I take commitments very seriously. If I make a commitment, I'm going to follow through on yeah. it. And therefore I make as few commitments as possible, not because I want to be loosey goosey, but because as it stands right now, I mean, how many people listening right now feel like they have enough time or feel like they would like to spend more time with their closest friends. Yeah. I'm guessing a lot of people would say they do. And yet many of us, myself included, have a history of committing to all sorts of like coffee dates and phone calls and group right. activities and birthday parties and so on with people really, we really don't feel close to, nor do we particularly want to be close to. Right. I think that is, that is a place to pay attention. Yeah. Well, Tim, speaking of being very selective about what you spend your time doing, thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast. What's your final advice? The most important exercise that I do at least once a quarter is something called fear setting, which is closely related to goal setting, but it is defining fears and sort of telescoping out and taking a number of steps to kind of defang the unknown. And what you will generally realize is you're going to be okay. Yeah, Things are going to be fine. But with doom scrolling and all the incentives of keeping people constantly outraged and terrified that you find in uh, certainly the current breed, most dominant breed of, of online news, I would say, number one, pay attention to your information diet cultivate selective ignorance. And there are many ways you can do that. And I've, I've written about it so people can find that pretty easily just by Googling those things. And look up fear setting, fear hyphen setting. And I would encourage people to at least take one stab at that because it can, it can really feel like within 15 or 30 minutes, just a piece of paper and a pen, that's all you need. And I would recommend doing it by hand also that you drop this kind of hundred pound burden off your back yeah. that you didn't even realize you were carrying and that can have some far reaching effects. Yeah. So I would suggest people take a look at fear setting. Great advice. I've checked it out before. I can't recommend that approach enough. A great way to round out our conversation, Tim. I, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to share your stories, your insights and for joining the More Than So podcast. It's been a real pleasure having you. And I mean it when I say this has been thoroughly enjoyable and very impactful. I'm sure it'll be impactful for others as well. Yeah, thanks for the time. It's nice to be here. One thing that we didn't have a chance to get into, but I'll give people just a couple of jumping off points. Actually, I'll give them one jumping off point. I would say probably half of my time for the last six to eight years has been spent focused on novel treatments or developing novel treatments, therapeutics through nonprofit donations and grants to universities, primarily for science, related to intractable or difficult to treat mental illnesses or psychiatric conditions, right? So that would include treatment-resistant depression, which I have a lot of experience with. It would include you know, chronic anxiety. It would include complex PTSD, which unfortunately I also have experience with. And the science, some of the more cutting edge and novel approaches to these things are producing results that kind of defy the current paradigms within psychiatry, which is very exciting to me. So if people want to see more of, of that, uh, you can go to the projects page on SciSeFoundation.org. That's the name of my foundation. It's just S-A-I-S-E-I foundation.org and go to projects and you'll be able to see some of 
the most interesting scientists and the most interesting work, in my humble opinion, that's being done in the world right now related to mental illness, because the, the graph on the prevalence of these conditions does not look good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worsened a lot since COVID. I think I, it's something like the, the volume to some of the better known suicide hotlines is up 30%. Yeah or more, depending on the, the time range. So that is of great interest, and I uh, encourage people to check that out. And there's also a documentary that people can can watch called Trip of Compassion that's related to at least one of the modalities that I think is most interesting for PTSD. So I'll, I'll leave people with that. It's great work, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. It's fascinating, the impact that it's having on people. So thank you on behalf of the human race, I guess, <laughs> for doing what you do. <laughs> Just doing my little part, if I can. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.